0: So we're returning back to our series in the book of Genesis, and we're picking it up in chapter number five, and we'll make our way into the beginning of chapter number six here this morning, because chapter number five begins with the genealogy of Adam and goes all the way to Noah, and then into chapter six, we have a bit of a, of a transition introducing who this man Noah is before we then get the generations of Noah, the story of Noah and the flood. Okay, so we'll be looking at Noah and the flood next week, but this week we're going to be looking at from Adam to Noah, the events that transpired between these two individuals. Now the text we're going to look at today has a number of interpretive issues, uh, endless debate on some of these texts, especially the sons of God and the daughters of men um, that we'll be talking about, but I just want to remind you right at the very start not to lose focus on why we're here. We're here to to learn about God and why he has revealed this text to us here this morning. It's not just that we debate about genealogies. In fact, the New Testament warns us about those who engage in endless debates over genealogies and this this useless teachings. Rather, these are written and recorded for our instruction, and so we're here to see what this text would teach us about God and his ways and how we ought to respond here this morning. So Gavin has read for us, the genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah, I'm not going to read it again here in chapter 5, but I do want to point out some interesting things in this genealogy. The first thing you probably notice, especially if you're unfamiliar with this part of Scripture, is, boy, these guys lived a long time. It's like, what's with these long lifespans? Methuselah, 969 years? It's like, this must be some kind of mythology, This must be some kind of transmission error or mistake. Certainly people can't live for that long. This is going to show you that Genesis can't be trusted as history if it has these long lifespans. But it's not an exaggeration. It's not a textual error. God's word here is telling the truth. Uh, We consider our own lives. Why we die at such a relatively young age compared to these individuals is because of our genetics, you know, our cells only divide and reproduce a certain number of times before that process begins to break down because of the amount of mutations we have in our, in our bodies. And so when God created Adam and Eve, free from mutations, they lived an awful long time. And so with their descendants, it's not until we have, again, the whole population narrowed down to just one family in Noah and then their offspring, we see to have lifespans slowly decrease into what we have even today. What's also interesting about these lists of names is that as you read this list, it looks like they lived for a very long time and you would think that one lived after another, but a lot of these names here were contemporary with one another. Uh, the back of your handout, so the sermon handout, has a has a little graph that shows uh, when Adam lived and, and how long he lived for. And it's interesting because Noah's grandfather was Methuselah and his father was Lamech and Adam was still alive when Lamech was around. Okay, so... The time when Adam died and when Noah was living is not too much, not too long a period of time. And so all these men would have uh, theoretically known one another, at least living on the earth in the same time period. And so you can imagine all the wisdom that could be gained if you lived a thousand years. Um, all, all the knowledge that can be shared and that you can learn from one another, living a thousand years or close to a thousand years, the different skills, if you were working in a certain craft or hobby, the skills that could be gained for doing it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You can imagine how many children you have if you live that long. Imagine how big your family would be if you lived that long. Okay, um, And so we now think of a big family size. You know, if you're five or more, or you're getting very big. But back then, if you lived a thousand years, how big would your family be? I have no idea how many, how many children, how many offspring you could have as a family, it would just be an amazing thing to think of. And on the flip side, there's a negative. Because imagine the depravity and the sinfulness. And we can see even some, as they get older in age, how hardened they get to truth. And how hardened they get to righteousness. And how hardened they get to things that are that are good and pure. And imagine that go on for a thousand years. You see sinfulness and depravity flourish in people's lives as wickedness increase increases as life goes on and on so what's the significance of this genealogy why is it recorded here for us rather than just information to get us from adam into noah remember the significance of these names we looked at genesis chapter 4 eve was believing that her offspring was going to now crush the head of the serpent so she bore cain is this the one and then and then Abel was murdered by Cain, so obviously Cain wasn't the one, and and Abel was a candidate, but now he's dead, and so then she had Seth, and perhaps this is the one, perhaps this is the Messiah, the anointed one, this one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then Seth and his son Enosh began the public worship of God, they began to call upon the name of the Lord. And now here we are in chapter 5, we have a whole names, and we have more descendants from Seth and from Enosh, and we get all the way down to Noah as people are still looking for that offspring who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we come to Noah, look at verse 29 in chapter 5. I'll start in verse 28. Verse 28 and 29 in Genesis chapter 5. This is when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah. And this is what he said. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our hands, from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. So yeah, they're still looking for this promised one, looking for this one who is going to reverse the curse. And so when Lamech gives birth, or it begets Noah, him and his wife, have Noah, he says, no, this is the one now. He's, he's having faith in God's promise and says, perhaps this is the one who is going to relieve us from this curse and from the toil and from the, from the curse of sin that has come upon this earth. And so they look at Noah as perhaps this one who is to come to crush the head of the serpent. Now we're going to look next week how Noah did not fulfill this role of this one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. But he's a type of the one to come. He's a type of Christ. He's a type of Adam. He receives a covenant as well that points forward to the, the greater covenant that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll talk about that next week. This week, we're going to jump into chapter number six. As we get this account, this genealogy from Adam all the way to Noah, and then we begin to talk about this transitionary period between Adam and Noah, and right before the flood. And so I'm going to read the first four verses of Genesis chapter six. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men. Who are, who are of old, the men of renown. So we come to this text, we have a lot of questions. You know, Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? Uh, who are the, the Nephilim that this passage is talking about? Is this a good thing, a bad thing? What's going on here? And so the interpretation that I will be sharing with you this morning is both the oldest and one that is shared by the majority of, of commentators that I, that I was able to look at. Um, but it's certainly one that many people have written on, uh, a lot of debates about who these groups of individuals are, and so I'll be sharing with you this morning why I feel what the scriptures are teaching here, why I think this is talking about, and we'll get that in just a moment. The two questions we're going to be looking at, first one, who are the daughters of man and who are the sons of God? Okay, verse number two mentions, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. Who, who is that? What's it talking about? The second thing we're going to look at is who are the Nephilim, in verse number four. Who are the Nephilim? So let's begin with that first question. Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man? Now there's two main interpretations, okay? There's, there's more than two, but there's two main ones that I'm going to talk about this morning. One is to see the sons of God here referring to those individuals like we just read, the, the godly line of Seth and his descendants, those who, who live for righteousness, those who are, who are not part of Cain and his offspring. We saw in chapter 4 Cain and his descendants were just like him, in fact even worse than him, with a murderous and hateful heart. And so we have the sons of God being referred to here as the godly line of Seth and his descendants. And the daughters of man then is the the ungodly line of Cain, those who are not worshiping God, but those who are carnal, natural, fleshly. And so we have the sons of God and the daughters of man. And so what's going on here in Genesis 6 2 is we have those godly descendants of Seth marrying and taking for, them, for themselves wives these ungodly women of Cain's line. And so they're intermarrying between the righteous and the unrighteous, the godly line and the ungodly line. And so this is frowned upon by God. It's a wickedness that ends up leading to the flood. It is showing the wickedness of the time that even the godly men were marrying these daughters that they shouldn't have been marrying. So that's one interpretation, um, popular more recently. The second main interpretation, the one that I'll be arguing for, is that the sons of God are actually demons. Sons of God are actually fallen angels, who came to this earth to marry the daughters of man. Now that might seem shocking to you, but I'm going to dig in here why I would teach that. Okay, so whether angels here in their own bodies or more likely possessing other human bodies um, came down and married, took for themselves wives, these daughters of man, and had offspring. Okay, now, why would I favor one over the other scripturally? First, I'm going to share with you the reasons why this cannot be talking about the line of Seth. Why the sons of God cannot be talking about the line of Seth. Okay, a few reasons. First, look at verse number one in chapter six. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive. So who are who is the man in verse one? When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. It's not talking about Cain here. It's talking about man. If you look back in the beginning of chapter 5, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made them in, his li- in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. And then he talks about their offspring. And so here we have the offspring not of Cain, We have a genealogy of Adam, genealogy of man, when man gave birth to daughters, okay? And in fact, you can actually translate the word daughters of man to daughters of Adam, because Adam means man, and in fact, it's the exact same word. And so some translations, you might have Adam in one place where the person beside you might have man, because Adam is the Hebrew word for man. And so it could be translated the daughters of Adam, that is the daughters of mankind, Second thing, if the sons of God were the godly line, then why are they the instigators of this sin? It's the sons of God who are sinning and taking as their wives any that they chose. Okay, this is not a a mutual, consensual relationship. They're, they're, They're taking wives any as they chose. And so, how can the godly line be the ones who are actually the sinners in this case? Thirdly, this interpretation has no support in the most ancient interpreters. It's a, it's a relatively novel interpretation. You read the older commentaries, you go back even to the time of Jesus and before, because Genesis was written before Jesus, um, this interpretation was unheard of. No, no one had heard of it before. And so, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, but yet we should look at it perhaps with more skepticism. Now let me show you, those are the reasons why I don't think it can be the line of Seth, talking about sons of God. Let me show you why I think this is referring to evil angels who married women and increased corruption and wickedness here on the earth. We already saw that in verse 1, okay? The daughters of man are talking about daughters of Adam, daughters of mankind, humanity, okay? Not the daughters of Cain, okay? That's the first reason. Second reason, the term sons of God here is used most often in the Old Testament, in fact, exclusively in the Old Testament, to refer to angelic beings. Okay, it's used a number of times. Always in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to angelic beings, whether good or evil. Listen to Job one six. It says, "Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them." Okay, these are a- angels, angelic creatures coming before God, and Satan, an evil angel, w- was among them. It's the same thing in Job. And so all angels, even the fallen ones, are called in the Old Testament the sons of God. Now why would the Old Testament call angelic beings the sons of God, even the evil ones? It's commonly understood that the sons of God here is because they are directly created by God. They weren't born by somebody else or an intermediary. In fact, in Luke 3.38, Adam, at the beginning of that genealogy, is called the son of God. So why is Adam called the Son of God? Because he was directly created by God, just like the angels. That's why they're called the Son of God. That's why we, in the new birth, a new creation, it says creation groans in Romans, they eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, those who are directly created by God and given the gift of the new birth, a new creature in Christ. And we are now given this title, the sons of God. And so this term is used here of angelic beings in the Old Testament, and so there's no reason to understand it any differently here in Genesis 6. Third reason, this interpretation of of angels coming to earth to marry the daughters of men is the Jewish understanding of this text, at least from the time of Jesus. Josephus writes this, and he says, "...for many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength." The Jewish book of Enoch, again, a Jewish book, not in scripture, but written before the time of Jesus. It says, It happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days, that daughters were born to them, elegant and beautiful. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, come, let us select for ourselves wives from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. In fact, the whole book of Enoch is dedicated to this theme. It goes on and on and on about this event. In Genesis chapter 6. So it's a Jewish understanding. It's fourth reason. We have the New Testament witness. The New Testament witness. Listen to 2 Peter 2.4. It says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness... "...to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly." It continues and says, "...then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority." Okay, listen to those words. Angels who were judged, cast into hell, reserved under chains of gloomy gloomy darkness. Now listen to Jude, verses 6 and 7. It says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. this This is like 2 Peter 2 just said. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So here again, we have angels, the same terminology in Second Peter 2, cast into hell, bound and unchanged in gloomy darkness. Why? Because they despise authority. They left their dwelling They left their their place in the heavenlies and they came to earth. And they did a sin, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, likewise, they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. This is not talking about homosexuality. This is talking about angels coming down to the race of men. And so here they're compared to Sodomites. I already mentioned the book of Enoch. And it's account of Genesis 6, and Jude actually quotes, just right after those verses, it quotes in the book of Enoch. Not that Enoch is scripture, but again, the J- Jude is obviously familiar with what Enoch has written. Then we have 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. Okay, So 2 Peter 2, Jude 6 and 7, and now 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. And it says this, That Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay. Now, if these passages aren't referring to the events of Genesis 6, then what on earth are they referring to? Who are the spirits that were cast into prison during the days of Noah? Who are the ones who, who are the angels who left their dwelling place and who came to earth and despised authority and committed a sin like Sodom and Gomorrah? The only place this fits is with Genesis chapter 6. And so we see the best way to understand this text is that sons of God refer to those angelic beings, fallen angels, sinful angels. Who are like Satan who came in the garden and possessed a serpent? We have these sinful angels coming into this earth, to marry the daughters of men, likely in other human bodies, to try to have offspring of their own. Now, there are a few objections to this view. For instance, we have Matthew twenty-two thirty, where Jesus is speaking about marriage, and the Pharisees are asking him, imagine a, a man who, who has a wife, and before they have children, he, and that that wife dies, and he marries somebody else, and before, and, the, and marries somebody else, and they die, and marries somebody else, and then, so who, who's... Who's going to be married in heaven? You know, what, what spouse are they going to have? And Jesus says in Matthew 22, 30, he says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That is, the angels in heaven don't marry. Okay, now this text doesn't say the angels in heaven uh, are just, are, are neuter, they're not gender. You know, we have many scripture where angels come to this earth and they're always referred to as men. Okay, whether that's, at the ascension of Jesus, whether well, that's in, uh, on the tomb, whenever Jesus is risen from the dead, they're referred to as men. In the Old Testament, they're commonly mistaken as men. And in fact, when Lot was in Sodom, and angels came to visit him to tell him to get out of the city, the men of Sodom came there because they wanted to rape those angels. Okay, and so angels can come to earth as, as men. All right, we see that all over, all over the place in Scripture. And obviously in the Gospels, too, we have many demon possessions and such. But this verse is saying that the angels in heaven aren't given in marriage. But it fits perfectly with the angels who, who despise authority, who left their heavenly dwelling and who came to earth to marry, to have children. Doesn't say it's impossible, just that the angels in heaven don't do that, but it doesn't speak about those fallen angels who would despise the authority of God and who are now cast into hell because of it. Another text or another objection that people point to is that why would God judge the earth with a flood if the problem was with fallen angels and not with men? And we're going to get to that because these, race of, of these angels who came down to have children, their children were just men. They were human children. Uh, whether they had an idea of having some alternate race or whatever um, doesn't, doesn't come to reality if even that was their motive. But we have their offspring are, in fact, men. But it increases the wickedness of this world. And so we, because of the great wickedness, God sends the flood. Okay, so what's going on in verse six or chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we have the sons of God, these demons from the angelic realm, coming and taking as wives the daughters of man. Now, let's look at verse number 3. As we continue here, verse number three, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not imbi- abide in man or strive with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, what is he getting at here? Some propose that, well, he's now setting a length a time limit on people's lifespan. They lived too long before, too much wickedness because they lived such a long period of time. And so now their lifespan is now going to be 120 years. Uh, But that doesn't really flesh out. And if you look at the back of your sermon handout, we see that the the lives of people after the flood are still, they live for quite a long time. It takes a while for those lifespans to come down. What is much more um, reasonable to conclude from this text is that when God says his spirit shall not abide in man forever or strive with man forever, his days should be 120 years, God here is setting a timeline for when judgment is going to come in the flood. He goes, that's it, the wickedness is too great. 120 more years, and the flood is coming. And so God announces an end to the wickedness of man. And in 120 years' time, we have the flood coming. And we have references to Noah preaching for 100 years uh, as a herald of righteousness to warn people about the flood. And so here God gives a timeline of when this flood is going to happen. And then in verse number four, we come to our second major interpretive question to understand this text. In verse number four, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. If you have the King James Version, it says they were giants. It calls these Nephilim as giants. There were giants on the earth. And that's because in the Greek Bible, when the, when the, when the Jew, Greek-speaking Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the Greek word gigantes, uh, which we translate now as giant. But the Greeks meant something different than giant than what we think of giant. We think of giant, we think of someone of a very tall stature. Uh, the Greeks, when they thought of giant, they thought of someone who was... Uh, a giant was someone who was, in Greek mythology, who was born between the gods. When the gods sprinkled down blood on the earth, out-sprouted that with these giants, uh, These these offspring of the heavenlies. And perhaps... They were thinking of the first two verses in Genesis 6 when they translated this term Nephilim to gigantes, to giants. Modern interpretations or modern translations of the Bible just leave the term Nephilim as it is, because there's a disagreement what this word means, and so they just leave it up to us. (laughs) They just leave the word transliterated from Hebrew, Nephilim, right into English. Uh, It's not an English word. But they don't want to translate it because they don't want to give us a false idea of what this might be. And so, modern version of the Bible, just leave it as Nephilim. And so, who are these Nephilim? Well, Luther translated this word tyrant. Tyrants. As I the King James translates it giants. Um, the word literally means fallen ones. Okay? Fallen ones. Now, there's... Disagreement on where that means they're the ones who have fall or they're the ones who fall upon others, as in these are tyrants, these are warriors. What comes later helps us when it says about these Nephilim, that they were on the earth in those days and also afterward, and then it says, these were the mighty men, that is, these were warriors, okay, who were men of old, the men of renown. You know, these were famous warriors, Okay, so these Nephilim are not your peace-loving, kind, righteous people. These were a group of men who were known to be warriors, who were famous to be warriors, who are called here the fallen ones, okay? Um, and so not your kind, peace-loving kind of people, rather known for their wickedness. And that's why Luther translated the word tyrants. Okay, there were mighty, strong warriors, rulers who had their fame spread. Now, when did the Nephilim exist? It says here the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. Now, it's common to understand the Nephilim as offspring of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of man, but the text doesn't say that. The Nephilim were there before and afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So these Nephilim are not some half-breed, angelic human creatures that, because of that, are, are, are really wicked or really large. But rather, it's talking about another group of people here who were, who were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in. They're already there. And they, were already, and they lived through that period when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. Okay. Now there's another reference in the Old Testament of this word Nephilim. It's in Numbers thirteen thirty three. And how it's used in Numbers thirteen thirty three, we have spies going into the land, and they said the Nephilim are there. The descendants of or the sons of Anak, the descendants of the of the Nephilim, they're in the land, and so we can't go there. They're 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 so big, they look at us like grasshoppers. Okay, another reason why. This is translated in Genesis 6 as giants, Okay, these big big people in the land of Canaan. So what do we do about that? Because if the Nephilim had descendants that were living in the land of Canaan after the flood, then not everyone died in the flood. It's a real issue. So what's going on? Did the Nephilim get extinguished in the flood, or did they not? It's important to remember, I'm going to read Numbers thirteen thirty three and following when we have that report of the Nephilim. And then we'll see what this means and how it relates to the text we're looking at today. It says this, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, Let us go up at once and occupy Let's go to the promised land, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. And this is what they said. The land through which we have gone to spy, spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them. Okay? What's important to understand here is that these spies who were unbelieving and who were judged in the wilderness for 40 years until they're all dead before they enter the promised land were lying. This is a bad report, it says. It's not true. Because when they went conquered Canaan, where were the Nephilim? Where were these big giants? They weren't there. But rather they used this Nephilim, this word that's in Genesis 6, and said, no, the Nephilim are in the land. We can't go there. And nobody clued in and said, well, they must have been destroyed in the flood. But they thought, oh, no, the Nephilim are there. These descendants of the Nephilim. And so they're too great because these were mighty warriors, men of renown. And so it worked when they tried to scare the people from going into the land by saying the Nephilim were there, when in fact, they were not. They perished in the flood. But these Nephilim were men who were known for, t- for being tyrannical and mighty warriors. Now as we get to the bottom of verse 4, we've looked at our two questions, who the sons of God were and the daughters of man, and then who the Nephilim are. Now, you probably know more about this passage than perhaps you thought relevant um, or knew before. But why is it included here? Why does this text speak about these things here and now? The text here as a transition between the line from Adam to Noah, and then we have Noah and the flood, is to show how the wickedness and the corruption of earth came to be of such a great level. Not only do we have this group called the Nephilim, these these mighty warriors, these tyrants who are wicked, these famous men. But now you also have angels who are coming from heaven to the daughters of men and producing as well further wickedness and corruption. And so we have God's promise of the flood. This is exactly what follows in verse 5 to 7. Look at verse 5 to 7 with me. After the sons of God, after the Nephilim, it says in verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Interesting what's going on here. God sees the wickedness and it grieves him. He's saddened. He's sorry. He regrets that he made man. Uh, The King James actually says he repented that he made man. Whether it's sorry, regret, repentance, these are all legitimate translations for this Hebrew word that's used here to talk about regret. And so what is going on? How can God, who just created the things good and said, said, and he blessed his creation, be fruitful and multiply, and he was pleased, and now he's regretting that he even made creation, even made man? Didn't he know what was going to happen? How can he be, how can he show regret or remorse? And so just a few minutes on this question, does God repent? Does God regret things? Um... For this question, you can note down in your margin or on your bullets in there. First Samuel 15. This this chapter, First Samuel 15 is really instructive to this question of whether God repents or not. Because the same term about God regret, God having regret is used in First Samuel 15 a number of times. In First Samuel 15, we have Saul, freshly minted anointed king, who then disobeys the Lord. God told him to devote the Amalekites and their city to destruction. Spare none of it. Destroy it all. So Saul took it upon himself to, to change those orders just a little bit. And he thought, well, he take the best of it and then offer it as a sacrifice to God. And Samuel says, that's not what God asked you to do. And it says the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. This is what he says in verse number 11, in 1 Samuel 15, I regret That I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You know, he was obedient, but now he's disobedient, so I regret making him king. How could God say such a thing? Later in that same chapter, in verses 28 and 29, this is what it says. Samuel speaking. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now we're really confused (laughs) because God said in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king. Then Samuel says in verse 29, the Lord is not a man that he lies or has regret. So what is it? Then the chapter ends in verse 35 where it says, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So what is going on here? What is going on? Does God regret? Does he repent or not? How do we make sense of all this? The best way to make sense of this is that God's regret, his feeling of regret or remorse, is what we call anthropopathic or anthropopathism, taking human emotions and feelings and ascribing them to God. We have another thing called anthropomorphism, where we describe... You use the human form to describe God, like the eyes of the Lord were upon me, or the, the hand of the Lord is my strength. You know, does God have hands or eyes? No, but we use that language to describe God. And the same thing for these emotions. Uh, Psalm 110.4 says this, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. In 1 Samuel 15, like this read, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. God doesn't repent in the fact that he changes his mind. So what's going on here when he says he regretted to make Saul king, or he regretted that he created mankind and to put him on the earth? This is what happens when you have an unchanging God who doesn't lie, no shadow of turning or change in him. He's immutable, unchangeable. When you have this unchanging God relating to creatures, because God is unchanging and he's in a relationship with us, We have this language because the unchanging God, who's all righteous, whenever we are obeying, whenever Saul is following his commandments, God is pleased. And when Saul is disobeying, God is grieved and he regrets that he makes made Saul king. And so because he has unchanging standards, it necessitates that he reacts differently in regard to human actions. And that's what we have here, God made, God made man good, and he was pleased in the beginning, and now God sees the wickedness of man, and it grieves him, and so he is going to destroy the earth. That's his response. Look at verse number seven again. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the Lord... Verse six, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So here God is going to judge this earth in a flood. But then look at verse number eight. But Noah, okay, the but there, so many buts in scripture are so positive, but Noah found Favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, there we have the eyes of the Lord. The Lord doesn't have eyes, but we use that language. The Lord found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, in the bleakness of this sin, when we have demons coming down on the earth, when we have the Nephilim and the, these very famous wicked men. Now we have a ray of hope in Noah. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We began by noting in. Chapter 5, verse 29, how Lamech was hoping that his son Noah would reverse the effects of this curse. And then we have here, Noah as a type of savior in chapter number 6, by finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. Later in verse number 9, if you look at the description of Noah, it says he was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And that Noah walked with God. In Hebrews chapter 11, Noah's called a man of faith. In 2 Peter 2, he's called a herald or a preacher of righteousness. All of these descriptions of how good Noah is come after he found favor with God. He didn't say Noah earned favor with God. You can't earn favor. Because his word for favor is the same word for grace. Okay, grace is unmerited favor. That's the word he has used, unmerited favor. And so Noah found it, came across it. It was given to him. He didn't earn it. And then we have all these descriptions of Noah as a man of righteousness because of the favor of God, because of the grace of God. Now, Noah was still a sinner. Okay, He wasn't cho- chosen because he was free from sin. Because after the flood, his sons find him drunk, passed out, and exposed. And so we see Noah was a sinner. But we see the difference here between him and the rest of humanity is that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the difference. That Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what do we learn from this? Okay, we've come to this text, slog through a number of interpretive issues. Now, how does this text relate to us today? Is this text a call to be righteous like Noah so you can find favor before God? You know, be be strong and bold like Daniel or pray like Daniel, be strong like David, be righteous like Noah. So God will be on your side. That's not the point of this text. This text is not really about Noah. Is this text about guarding your women from demons? Keeping them safe from ungodly marriages? No, the text is not about that. Is this text, you know, when things are at their worst, look for that glimmer of hope. There's always going to be a glimmer of hope when things are at their worst. It's true, but it's not what this text is about. This text, this account, like all of Scripture, is about God. This text is teaching us about God. And what does this text teach us about God? Two things, primarily. First is this, that God is not going to tolerate wickedness forever. God is going to judge. God is a God who judges wickedness. He's not pleased with wickedness. He's grieved over wickedness. Here he gives man a time period, 120 years, and judgment's coming. And judgment is going to come swift, and judgment is going to be severe. All flesh on earth is going to be wiped out in God's judgment. So this text teaches us about God, and he's a God who's going to judge. The second thing it teaches us is about at the same time God extends his arm in judgment, he also has an arm of grace that he's going to extend. And so we see a God who is going to bring judgment... And a God who is going to bring grace and mercy at exactly the same time. And so there's two ways that God here responds to the wickedness on earth. Okay, so this text and our take home today is not be like Noah or don't be like the Nephilim or anything like that. But it's about God and about knowing who he is. Consider his judgment for just a moment. He judged the earth by water and he will judge the earth again. Psalms 5 and Psalms 11 both tell us that God hates the wicked. He's angry with them every day. You know what's in the Bible? Psalm 5 and Psalm 11. God is angry with the wicked. He hates them. Okay, it doesn't say that God just, he hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. There's some truth to that. The scripture says God hates the wicked and judgment is going to come. Here he gave the people 120 years. Before judgment come. Now today there's also a terminus ad quem. There is a, a, a goal, there's a time limit to when God judgment is going to come, and we don't know. And in first Peter chapter three, there are mockers and scoffers and says, Where's the return of the Lord? And you know what Peter said to them, you mockers and scoffers? What did the people say whenever judgment came in the days of Noah? They were, they were marrying and giving themselves a marriage. They were caring about their business, and they weren't prepared for the judgment of God. And that judgment came swiftly, and it destroyed everyone. And he goes, you mockers and scoffers who are who are mocking us for waiting for the return of Christ, you forget what happened in Noah's day. It's going to happen again. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3, it's not going to happen through a flood, but it's going to happen through fire. That God, all the elements of this universe are going to melt with a fervent heat as God judges everything in fire. And so the scriptures tell us God is going to judge again. Now, we don't know when. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be years from now, but we don't know. But what we do know is that we live in wickedness, just like the days of Noah, just like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if we should know anything from these texts is that God is not going to have patience with the wicked forever. And that he's going to judge. And his judgment is going to come and it's going to be terrible. So if you don't know God here this morning, just know that you're going to come under God's judgment unless you repent and flee to Him. Because He is a God who is going to judge. At the same time, as we see here God come forth in judgment, we see God extend grace to Noah. And we see even in God's future judgment in this earth, God is going to extend His grace. Here He saves Eight. Consider that. How many people were on the earth at that time? Living a thousand years, having that many children. And God saves eight of them. Eight. Who were spared from judgment. And again, not because they were perfect. They're sinners. They found favor in God's eyes. Eight of them. And what does Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 7. He says the way is broad. That's a big, wide pathway that leads to where? To hell. The destruction, and the way is narrow, and the path is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so, if we should learn anything from this text, not only do we see God's hand in judgment, but we see God's hands in grace. We should recognize that more are going to face God's judgment, whether that was here in Genesis six or when Jesus Christ returns. That should scare us. That that text in Matthew seven is scary when Jesus Christ returns. So it's a call for us to seek God and His grace. God's grace is seen here in that He delayed judgment so Noah and his family could be saved. Okay, He told them to to build build an ark. He gave them time to build this ark so that they could be spared. Do you know that God is being gracious to us even here today by not returning? That's the point of 1 Peter 3. Is that God is being gracious so that we can have time to repent? God is being gracious right now and not coming down right now. So you have an opportunity to get right with God before he returns in judgment. So God was gracious in their day and he's gracious in our day just the same way by delaying his return so that we can be right with him. God was also gracious in Noah's day by giving him a promised way of escape. You know, build this ark, get aboard it. Listen to my word and you'll be saved. God has also given us a promise, a way of salvation, a way of escape. And it's not in a boat in Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is our way of salvation, this way of escape from the God, from God's judgment, which is to come. And it's really interesting to think of as we consider God's judgment and God's grace that both of these things come together in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is when we see the, the beauty, you know, the splendor of, of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we call him our Savior, our Lord, our friend, And at the same time, we see the magnificence of who He is in His work. We see God's judgment and His grace come together in who He is. Because on the cross, as Jesus bled and died, we see God's hand of judgment come upon Him. And why is He there? Not judging for His own sin, but for sin, my sin, for your sin. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Suffering judgment, suffering the wrath of God so that we could escape it, so we wouldn't have to face it. So we see God's judgment on Jesus Christ on the cross. And at the same time, we see God's mercy in allowing us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to escape that wrath and to live forever with Him in paradise for all of eternity. It's certainly grace, considering that none of us deserve it. We're sinners like Noah, wicked, undeserving, And yet, if we by faith cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be like Noah, clinging to that ark, saved from destruction. So remember, as we consider this text, God's judgment and God's grace. And that God is being gracious to you today. He's reminding you again of the way of escape, He's reminding you again about the importance of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to you here today to persevere, to not shrink back in unbelief, not to join the wicked and forsake God and his promises. It's a reminder for you here to rejoice in the judgment and mercy displayed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship him. And so let's all be sure that we're ready to meet God, because he's a God who's going to judge and a God who is also so very gracious. So let's make sure we've found favor in the eyes of the Lord by coming to him Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we consider this text here this morning, I pray that none of us here in this room would be those who are going to perish under your judgment. I pray that all of us would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would take up our cross and be a follower of Christ, knowing that you are a God who judges. And when your judgment comes, it will be swift and it will be severe. There will be destruction. As the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh God, as we look forward to that great and terrible day, as it's called in Scripture, I pray that we would... Cling to you in faith, recognizing that not only are you a God of judgment, but on the cross of Christ, your judgment actually works in our favor to merit our grace, to merit our forgiveness, to credit to us righteousness that we need to stand in your presence. We would not be destroyed because of our sin. Oh, God, we thank we thank you for your judgment because you are just God. You don't let the wicked go free. You don't let sin go unpunished. And so we thank you for your justice. And at the same time, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. So look look upon us here this morning with favor. Send your spirit to awaken dead hearts to believe and to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.